Well, I want to preach a message to you today. Obviously, we're not in the book of Exodus. You knew that, right? You could tell that we're not in Exodus. And you're, you're remembering that that's where we belong because we're preaching about Moses. And I, I just couldn't do it this week. I don't know exactly how to say it other than that. I was trying to work and study in the book of Exodus, and God just sort of gave me a different direction for today. And so I want to obey Him and obey His leading. Sometime last year... I received this little book in the mail. It's a book written by Ken Ham, and its title is Gospel Reset, Salvation Made Relevant. How many of you know Ken Ham? He's the the man that made the Creation Museum. He's a creation scientist and a gospel preacher, and uh, I appreciate his work and ministry. I got this little book in the mail, and it sat on my desk long enough for Benjamin to get a hold of it and color in it. But isn't it neat, I just thought this was cool, that Ben, he chose a matching color to go along with this book, because it's got orange, and Ben used orange. So, eventually I picked up this, you know, book with Ben's artwork in it, and I began to read it, and uh, I was very um, encouraged, and it was something that kind of challenged my thinking in a way, and I want you to get the point of this book today. And I'm going to show you, really, basically, the premise of his book. It's, of course, rooted in the Scripture. And we're going to get the point, you're going to get the point today, as we look at these two sermons that you've already heard. This is the third sermon you're hearing today, I guess you could say, because Jeff read what Peter preached at the day of Pentecost, and I read what Paul preached on Mars Hill in Athens. In the book, in Ken Ham's book, he challenges believers to understand the cultural context in which we live. Okay? How many of you understand that our country has changed a little bit over the last hundred years? Over Over some of your lifetimes, over my lifetime, which is relatively short, I know, Things have changed a lot in our world and in our culture. This is no longer your grandpa's God-fearing America. When you and I need to just understand that and stop being distressed over that. But we need to understand it. Uh, There was a day in our country where the average person feared God, where the average person reverenced the Lord's Day. Right? I mean, there was a day when you couldn't have gone to a restaurant in America, and especially in small-town USA. Why? Because it's Sunday. They're closed. There was a day in our country where everybody in town, for the most part, I know there have always been exceptions, but for the most part, the, the cultural norm was to show respect for the pastor or for the priest in a town. And that's not the case any longer. There was a day in our country where everybody honored the Bible. They at least would say, well, that's God's word. You, you need to be careful with, right? You, you need to show respect for it at least. Amen. People would, there was a day in our country where you weren't the only one that thought that. Everybody thought that. That day's gone. Okay, it's, it's changed. There was a day when, when everybody knew the Ten Commandments. Why? Because the kiddies recited them at school. In the government school, kids recited the Ten Commandments and learned things about the Bible. 
So I want to show you these two passages of Scripture, and I'm going to explain this this book to you. Uh, well, not the book, but the premise, the the part about it that that has helped me and will help you. Okay. By the way, you might want to get a copy of this, and on the back of your bulletin, I put a little bit of info about this book and where you could get a copy of it. Okay, so you could see that in your bulletin. Acts chapter two. Jeff read it for us, and, and in this in this sermon, Peter's preaching to a huge assembly of people. Who are they? Who's he talking to? See, when we share the gospel, the who we're talking to is really, really important. So who's Peter talking to? Well, he's talking to Jews. He's talking to people. Not all of them are from Jerusalem. Some of them are from elsewhere, but they are all Jews, and they've come to Jerusalem to worship God. They've come to Jerusalem to observe a feast. Okay, They're gathered there for that purpose. It's called the Feast of Pentecost. It just so happens that on that day, in God's infinite wisdom, He sent the Holy Spirit to His church. Jesus said to His disciples, it's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, I cannot send the Comforter unto you. So he says, I have to go, but when I go, I'll send the Comforter. He said, I will not leave you comfortless. And he told the disciples, those that first church, he told them as he ascended, he said, stay at Jerusalem, wait there for the coming of the promise, the promised Holy Spirit. And so that's exactly what they do. They go, they stay in Jerusalem, they're, they're there praying together. And uh, men and women together, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They begin to speak with with diff- in different languages. The gift of tongues, the miracle of tongues, was given, and the people uh, from all over the area, from all over uh, the world, really, they are, they're hearing what the apostles are saying. In their own native tongues. Imagine me preaching. And some of you, your first language is Spanish or Odawa. And some of your your first language is German. And I'm here preaching in, in good old American English that I butcher. But you're hearing me in your first languages. What, a, what an incredible thing God did. And the point of all that is God wants to make His message clear. He wants the gospel to be clear. Okay? Well, you can imagine the incredible scene. People are watching this and they're looking at Peter and the others who are, who are sharing the message and they're saying, what's up with these guys? And somebody says, are these guys drunk? Are we drunk? I know This can't be right. right? Something's, something's strange here. Right? Jeff began reading for us in verse... 14, and in verses 14 to 21, he's explaining the promise. Peter's explaining. He's kind of answering their questions. And uh, he answers their questions about this miracle that's taken place, and he references the book of Joel, Joel's prophecy. God said long before this day that this day would come when he would pour out his spirit upon his believers and that they would receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that this was something different and new that God was doing for believers. There had been believers before, but nobody in any age has, has 
have the Holy Spirit reside in them permanently like believers in this day and in this age, which was beginning here. So he explains that, okay? But now I want you to focus in on verse 22, and this is where Peter begins to preach the gospel to this assembly. I want you to just think about it. Think about him preaching and think about the the people that don't know Jesus, they don't believe on him. Think about what they're hearing, okay? As he preaches in verse 22, he says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain him. What a way to start your sermon. I want you to see this gospel sermon begins, first of all, with Jesus. Okay? It begins with Jesus. In verse 24, he says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. It's not possible that death could hold on to him. So he begins right away with Jesus. And he says, Jesus of Nazareth. That's a name that was hated by the Jews in Jerusalem. He says, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's God. God delivered him to this world. You took him, and with your wicked hands you killed him. But that death, even death at your hands, couldn't hold him in the grave. And you have right there the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He says in verse 24, that it was not possible that he should be holding of it. So he begins his presentation with Jesus. He says he's God and you killed him. He says he's God and God raised him from the dead. And then verse 25, he cites David. Like all good gospel messages, he's referring to scripture. He's directing their attention. Remember who he's talking to. Don't forget He's talking to Jews. He's talking to people that have a cultural and innate understanding of some things. Okay? So he references Scripture. And look what David said. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. He's, David prophesied that Jesus would die on the cross, or he, that He would die in some way, and that He would really be dead, but not see corruption. Verse 28, Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. And then Peter explains. He says in verse 29, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. And I've been there. I've been there to that place in Jerusalem. They believe they still know where that place is, where David is buried. 
Verse 30, therefore being a prophet, that's cool, you know, we think of David as king, King David, or giant slayer David, but he's also a prophet. Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruits of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. What's he saying? Well, i got to read verse 31 too. He's seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all are witnesses. He's saying David believed it. He's saying David believed that Messiah would come, that he would die, and that he would come back to life. And I'm telling you that this Jesus of Nazareth, it's him. And we are witnesses. He says, we've seen him. And they were truly witnesses. You and I can say today that we are witnesses because we believe on Christ that he lives. And we know he lives because he lives in our hearts. And we talk with him and he talks with us. So we are his witnesses just the same. But they saw him with their own eyeballs. And they're telling this great crowd, we've seen him. We are his witnesses. He preaches the gospel to them. The Holy Spirit, He does His part. Oh, and He has a part. In fact, He has the main part, the leading part in gospel preaching. Don't ever forget that. He has the leading role. And He takes the message from ears to heart. And He puts it into the hearts of these men. Look at verse 37. It says, Now when they heard this, They were pricked in their heart. That means they were convicted by the Holy Spirit. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you're familiar with that feeling. Conviction. They were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, can I just stop right here for a second and tell you that if I was ever preaching the gospel somewhere or here and I'm going along, preaching along, and someone pipes up and interrupts with men and brethren, what should we do? I'd be, that'd probably be the end of the sermon. I would just be so excited. How wonderful that Peter had a little interaction with the crowd right there, you could say. Nobody, these guys didn't wait for the altar call or for the piano to play. When God spoke, they moved. When God pricked their hearts, they said, Hey, wait a minute. What do we do? What shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are far off. Hey, that should make you excited right there. That's you and I. To all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. But look at verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Who were baptized in this, in this, at this first gospel meeting? Well, those who received his word were baptized. 
That's why we say that baptism is for believers. We call it believer's baptism. They followed Christ in believer's baptism because they received the word. They received the message that Peter preached. And then after they received... Oh, wait a minute. By the way, look how many. 3,000 people. 3,000 people believed on Jesus. They must have been baptizing people everywhere. There must have been a line uh, all the way around Jerusalem. And then they are added to the church. The church at Jerusalem just went from about 100 to 3,100. Absolutely amazing. And what did these believers do? Well, now they're believers and they're disciples. Verse 41 says, They that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there added to them 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. That means that they learned what Jesus had taught the disciples, the apostles. They learned it from them. They learned the teachings of Jesus. Remember in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, go and, and teach all nations, baptizing them, and then teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So right away, the apostles are obeying, they're teaching, they're discipling, and then they continued uh, in fellowship. That's, that's not just hanging out together, but that's working together. That's planning together. That's looking around at their city and saying, what can we do to reach these people? What can we do to further this gospel message? And they get to work on that. And in breaking of bread and in prayers. I think they're not, maybe not just having a meal together, but observing the Lord's table together. And they're praying together. Things that we do still today as a church. This is Acts 2. This is what happened when Peter preached the gospel. Now, I think everyone here is familiar with the Apostle Paul. I read his sermon today for you in our scripture reading in Acts 17. I want you to turn there now. Acts 17. The Apostle Paul is a Jewish man. A zealous Jew, zealous for the law of God, zealous to eradicate the world of Jesus of Nazareth and his followers. He hated the name of Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus stopped him on the road to Damascus, knocked him off his horse, spoke to him audibly from heaven, showed himself to him in his, the brightness of his glory. Yes. He he hated the name of Jesus, Saul, I'm meaning before he was saved. He hated the name of Jesus because he he believed that Jesus was the was a false messiah. And he saw Christianity and those 3000 people that got saved, he saw that as a new startup religion that that must be put aside. So he saw it as, as heresy and a corruption of Judaism. And so he's just, he's a, Paul's a Pharisee with a sword. 
I mean Saul, before he gets saved. He's a Pharisee with a sharp sword, and he's not afraid to swing it. Okay? Does that, does that help you? He, Paul's like, a, you can think of Saul of Tarsus as, as like a, a Jewish bounty hunter kind of guy. I mean, he's out hunting Christians and arresting them, having them killed. For instance, uh, Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church at Jerusalem, Stephen was a gospel preacher, and he's, he's preaching to the Jews, to those Pharisees, the, the, the Judaizers, uh, the leaders of Judaism. He's preaching to them a very similar message to what Peter just preached in Acts chapter 2. And Saul of Tarsus oversaw his, his arrest and, and execution. He was there endorsing them killing Stephen. So Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus, is an enemy of the gospel until he meets Jesus. He, you could also say that Saul of Tarsus was, uh, uh, there's not a whole lot of difference between him and, and what we would call a terrorist today in our world. But the reason why is he didn't know, he didn't know Jesus. He thought he knew God. And he thought he was doing the right thing, but God had to knock him off his horse. In fact, Jesus spoke to him from heaven and he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Why, why, what you've done, you've been attacking me, the God you thought you knew, the God you thought you served. Well, Paul believes in that moment and his life is changed forever. So understand Paul's background though. He was just like everybody else in the crowd in Acts chapter 2. And everywhere Paul goes preaching the gospel, you can read through it in the book of Acts, everywhere he goes, he goes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Okay? He goes to the Jew first. The Jews are the people that have their, their cultural background is a, a Bible-based background. They know that there's one true God. They know that there's a promise of a Messiah. They know that God has a, a word, a scripture that he gave. They know and they believe those things already. So Paul goes to them first. He finds them. They're scattered about throughout everywhere he travels. And he goes to their synagogues and he tells them, the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. Believe on him. Some believe, some don't. A lot of times he gets kicked out. Some of them get mad. They chase him down. People just like he used to be chase Paul down and stone him with stones now. So, and then... In, in Acts 16 and 17, Paul is preaching the gospel and then he's going on to the next place, just slipping out of the way of trouble and arrest and he preaches at another place and another place and eventually he comes to Athens. Now what is Athens? Athens is a, a city in Greece and Athens is the seat. It's the, the um, most important town when it comes to the Greek philosophy, the Greek mindset, and worship of the, Greece, the Greek deities. Zeus and Mercury and Mars and Venus and all the rest. That's, that's where it happened. That's the, the headquarters of this, this different mentality. It's the headquarters, you could say, it really typifies the Gentile mindset. 
So Paul comes there to Athens, and look at verse 16. I didn't read these verses for you earlier, but look at verse 16, Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul waited, well, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up with him. While he waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, like, like he's always done, and in the market daily with them that met him. Now look at verse 18. Here's where things change. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Other some they say this, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, Paul at Athens in verse 18, he's preaching to a different crowd. He's preaching now, he's talking to people who have a different cultural mindset. He's talking to full-blown Greek philosophers and leaders of the Gentile world and of the Gentile thought. He begins his gospel presentation, my friends, with Jesus. Just like Peter did. He begins his gospel presentation with Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. But what happens in verse 18 is not what happened in Acts 2. In Acts 2, they said, Ah, oh, God has just pricked our hearts. We are under conviction. What, do, what should we do? Peter said, Repent and believe. Here they say, Ha! This guy's crazy. He's a setter forth of strange gods. What will this babbler say next? Now, are they more wicked? Are they more sinful? than the unbelievers that were hearing the gospel in Acts 2? No. Are they, were they any more or less hell-bound than anybody else? No. The fact is, they don't have the background, they don't have the cultural context that the people in Acts chapter 2 had. What do these guys have? They, they All they have... Well, what they don't have, they, ha they don't have a knowledge of the one true God. Who's the top Greek God? Zeus. Listen to me, Zeus and his offspring have as many problems as any man, usually worse. There, there, was, no, um, there was no ideal of holiness. Holiness was never the goal. When it comes to Greek religion and mindset. Now, what's Paul going to do? Is he going to throw up his hands? Is he going to go cry and just say, Well, the world's just different now. I guess this is as far as the gospel can go. No way, man. No way. His spirit is stirred within him. The Holy Spirit's working in his life. And Paul looks at this situation and he stops and he thinks for a second and then he has a gospel reset, as Ken Ham calls it. 
a gospel reset, a change in his thinking and approach. Look what he does, verse 19. They took him and brought him to Aeropagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. Aeropagus is like a, a judicial court that met on Mars Hill in the midst of all the gods and temples and statues. They say, Paul, we want you to come on up, you babbler, you crazy guy. You're, you're a character and we're interested, so come on. This might be fun for everybody to hear what you have to say. So they invite him up on top of Mars Hill. Look at the, and this gives us a little bit of the uh, mindset of verses 20 and 21, their mindset that is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. And then it says, for all the Athenians and strangers which were, which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Sounds like the beauty parlor. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. The barbershop's just as bad. I got some looks right there. Now, then verse 22, he preaches his message again. And he says, Then stood Paul in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. So he's, as he's being led up the way, he sees an altar that literally said to the unknown God. People would worship an altar to the unknown God. It's like, just in case we missed one. That's called dotting your I's and crossing your T's. Okay? Just in case we've missed one, we've got all these others, but in case we've missed one, to the unknown God. And we'll, you know, do something at that one. I don't know what they did. <laughs> now that, that almost is laughable to us. But you've got to remember who you're talking about. Who you're dealing with. So, Paul sees that. And God says, that's it. Use it. And so he does. He says, this God that you're worshiping in ignorance. Now, he's not putting them down. He's not being rude to them. They've, ex they've explained their ignorance by calling it the altar to the unknown God. They're basically saying, we worship this thing ignorantly just in case. So he's saying, you're, you're worshiping ignorantly. Let me explain to you who it is that you've overlooked. It's the one and only God. And then look how, he, look, how he go, look how he explains God to them. Verse 24, this is really where it begins. God that made the world and all things therein. That's where he starts. He didn't start. See, at first when he tried to talk to them back in town, he started with Jesus and the resurrection. When he goes to Mars Hill, he takes a step back further to creation. And he says, let me tell you about God who made the world. Do you see the difference? 
Do you see the necessity for the difference? The Jews knew these things about, the God, about God. They knew that He's the Creator. They know these things. They know He's made a special covenant relationship with them. They know that there's a promise, not just of land, but of, of someone, of a person who would come and be Messiah, who would be Savior. They missed Him. They overlooked Him. But they at least knew He was coming. We live in a world where God, the Bible, is really no longer respected, not by everybody. Now, I will tell you this, you and I live in West Michigan, and we're in the Bible Belt of Michigan. You might call it the Bible Belt of the Midwest. Frankly, I've never seen anything quite like it. Many people have a, a, some kind of a spiritual mindset, at least. Many people have some kind of a belief about God, about the Bible, it might not be right. It might not be exactly what we have or claim to have, claim to believe, I mean, but, but at least we've got it, okay? But by and large, and I think in the future, as we um, interact with people, we're going to have to make the switch from Acts 2 to Acts 17, Ken Ham makes the point in his book, Gospel Reset, that we need to go back and explain to people that God made them. Listen to me. And he's a creation scientist, and I think he would agree with this statement. Not to convince them of creation. If you make creation versus evolution your one battle to the neglect of the gospel, we've gotten off track. We've gotten off target. But the fact is, people need to understand that there is a God who made them. There's a God who made this world, and the creation that God made sinned against it, against Him. And we broke His law, and that's why things have been spiraling out of control ever since. Now, that makes sense to anybody with two eyes and a brain. That things aren't right in this world. Why aren't things right? That's why Adam and Eve sinned against the holy God who made them. Now, Paul's up on top of the hill talking to these guys, and he says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he need anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined... In, times, in the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. I love the things that Paul says to them about God. Let me, let me sort of sum it up for you this way. He tells them that of God the Creator. He tells them of God who is supreme. Did you notice that? Not just that He's the Creator, but that He is Lord of heaven and earth. This is not another. This is not just filling in the blank over here. He's not saying that they should just add Jesus, put His name in place of the tomb of the unknown God. He's saying this is the one and only. Amen. He is God supreme. He is God creator. 
He says in verse, in verse 24 that God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He, he's, not cre- he's not something that you can conjure up or that an artist could craft. He's saying that, that He's spirit. That's really what He's saying. He's saying he's, the, he's a spirit God. Not something physical that you would worship. Not something physical that needs something. But God is spirit. Jesus told us that about God. That God is spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. I love verse 27. Wow. That they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after Him and find Him though He be not far from every one of us. You know what He's telling them about God? That He's a close God. He's close. He's not far out there somewhere. He's reachable because He wants to be reached and He wants to reach you. Let me tell you something. No matter how far somebody is, from Jesus, no matter how far they are from God, you can rest assured that God wants to reach them and touch them with His gospel message. Look at verse 28. For in Him we live and move and have our being. What a statement. For in Him we live and move and have our being, Paul says, you wouldn't exist without Him. And you'll not exist in the future, or at least you'll wish you hadn't. You know what he's saying about God? He's saying He's a God we need. You know, He's not just something to add to the collection. He's the one person you need. And he gets even more specific now that the foundation is laid. But you see what Paul did? He understood, i gotta go, I got to lay some foundational things here. And I think as we meet people, we have to listen to them. We have to listen to what they say. He, he jumped in with Jesus in the resurrection and they said, that sounds crazy. But now it doesn't sound so crazy to anybody. As he's explaining the true nature of God, as the foundation is laid, then in verse 30... In verse 30, he preaches repentance from sin. He said, At the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. You need to repent about the wrong way you've been thinking about God. The wrong way you've been trying to worship. You need to repent of that. You need to repent of your sin. In verse 31, he says, Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness and that and by that man whom he hath ordained he says that he's portraying god as judge now they understand that they are judges themselves they make rulings over the people and he says one day you'll stand before god the judge now that the foundations laid he can go there he says uh He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Who is that man? It's the one that that the Bible calls the judge of the quick and the dead. It's Jesus. And he says, Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. He He preaches God as judge, but also as rescuer whereby he hath given assurance unto all men. 
God wants to give assurance. God wants these people that Paul is talking to to know, not to wonder or doubt about what's coming in the next, in, you know, in the life in life to come, but to know God, to know Jesus, and to have assurance. The same peace and assurance that we enjoy knowing that Jesus is our Savior and that heaven will be our home, that we'll be with God. He says, this, this one, this person who's the judge is also the rescuer. He's also the Savior, the answer. And, and he preaches the resurrection again uh, in that he hath raised him from the dead. See, in verse 18, he preached Jesus in the resurrection, and they said, you're a babbler. Now, a few verses later, after a gospel reset, he preaches Jesus in the resurrection after the foundation's been laid. And, and sure, not everybody's ready to believe. In fact, verse 32 says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some still said it. But others said we will hear thee again of this matter. In other words, another invitation has been extended. The Bible doesn't record it for us. I don't know if he went back up on the Mars Hill or if they met somewhere else, but they said, we're not done hearing if you're not done talking. And I think you've, maybe you were that way when you were coming to Christ. You heard the gospel and maybe you didn't seize on to it at first, but you said, I'll, I'll give that another hearing. I'll consider that. That's a good place to start. But God's working in people's hearts. That's evidence of it. They said, we'll hear you again. That's evidence of God's working. So Paul leaves, but verse 34 tells us, how be it? Certain men clave unto him and believed. And even names a man and a lady. History tells us that Dionysus becomes pastor of a, of a church at Athens. Bible, the Bible doesn't mention that, but history says that. That he becomes the pastor there. Somebody maybe that was apparently was on the hill. God did it. Just like in Acts chapter 2, it was the Holy Spirit that touched their hearts. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this message? What action do we take? Well, I want you to be sure of this, above all, that the gospel is sufficient to save anyone. Amen. Can I get an amen? amen? The gospel is sufficient to save anyone. It's the gospel that we've been commanded to preach and to teach. So we must. And we need to do it in faith believing that God can. Now, if the gospel is sufficient to save anyone, and if we really believe that, then we'll do our best to make it clear. To make the gospel clear. You see, the gospel was clear. It was easier, I'm saying, to make it clear in Acts chapter 2 than it was to make it clear in Acts chapter 17. That's why I had to have a gospel reset. So we need to stop being distressed about how bad the world is. And we need to take a gospel reset and proclaim it. 
we, you and I are the people that God chose to be here and now. We're the people that He knew in a changing world could still stand with the message of Jesus and say, let me explain it to you like this. And deliver a message like Paul delivered. Listen, if we won't reach people where they are, we won't reach people at all. We've got to go where they are. We've got to meet them where they are in their understanding. Even if that means they don't know anything. Introduce them to God, the Creator, so that you can introduce them to God, the Savior. Let's stand together.